Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. Today, in time for the holidays, we're going to have a great interview with Julie Simon and her new book, The Emotional Eater's Repair Manual, a practical mind-body-spirit guide for putting an end to overeating and dieting. Boy, that's going to be fun, putting an end to overeating and dieting. Wouldn't I like to do that once and for all? But first, before we start with Julie Simon and the Emotional Leaders Repair Manual, a few news and notes in psychology and medicine. A lot of talk lately about the fact that while we appear to spend a lot of time focusing on male cardiovascular health, it turns out that we need to put the spotlight on women's cardiovascular health. And why is that? It's because in the United States, cardiovascular disease takes the lives of more than 10 times as many women as breast cancer. That was surprising to me. 420,000 women die every year of cardiovascular disease. That's over 1,000 a day. That's a little more than the amount that die from smoking. Yeah, cardiovascular disease kills one in every three women. More than all cancer, chronic respiratory disease, Alzheimer's, and accidents combined. So women need to get involved more than they have in their cardiovascular health. Yeah. So what kind of things can they do? Here are some things that women can do. Number one, of course, don't smoke. Smoking is the worst thing you can do to your heart and actually to nearly all your organs and those of people around you. Yep. Among young and middle-aged women, about two-thirds of all heart attacks are caused by cigarette smoking. And no level of smoking is safe, and the risk of heart attack rises with every cigarette smoked daily. Perhaps enough said, perhaps not. Do what you can, not only for yourself, for your family, for friends. Talk about it. You know my old theme. Talk about everything. Make your life transparent. Don't let any topic be a topic that we can't talk about. The topic we can't talk about is the one that's going to do us in. Two, know your blood pressure and keep it under control. Easy thing to do. You can go down to a, I won't name brands, but you can go to a various kinds of, of, of stores and buy easy-to-use blood pressure machines. They'll not only give you your, your diastolic and systolic pressure, they'll give you your heart rate, your pulse, in other words, and some of them even have a little printer so you can push the button and keep records. Great thing to do, because if, you're, if you're, you see your blood pressure is going up, that's the time to get right in to see your physician and do something about it. You don't want to really wait for your annual physical to find out if you have high blood pressure. Not a good idea, especially when for a couple of bucks, they're really cheap, you can get yourself a darn good blood pressure machine and keep tabs on it weekly, twice monthly. Some people do it daily. 
What else? Know your blood cholesterol levels and keep them in the desirable range. Yeah. For a woman, cholesterol should be less than 130 milligrams per deciliter. 130 is the number. Optimal is less than 100 and less than 70 if you're a very high risk for a heart attack. But these guidelines you don't need to memorize now. You'll find them on Google. Your doctor will tell you about them. The important thing is get your blood cholesterol levels checked on a regular basis. And while you're doing it, have your blood sugar level checked and control it if it's high. Find out what your triglycerides are. These are important things for staying alive. Eat a heart-healthy diet rich in vegetables, fruits, beans, whole grains, and dairy products. You're going to hear a lot more about this from Julie Simon, so I'm not going to go into it right now. But do cut back on sodium. Sodium, yeah, reduce the risk of hypertension, high blood pressure, and stroke. Learn about the numbers here. The recommended daily limit is just 1,500 milligrams. Yeah, just 1,500. Stay active. Physical fitness has been proven, not just in the United States, not just in California, not just in Northern California. This isn't a fad. This is the real McCoy. Physical fitness reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease. Yet, nearly half of American women don't exercise at all. And a nice walk for about 30 minutes, many days a week, is sufficient. Control your weight. That's something we're going to hear about from Julie Simon today, so stay tuned in for the interview with Julie Simon on the Emotional Leaders Repair Manual. She'll talk about how to control your weight. In fact, she's going to talk about it, how you do that, and putting, put an end to overeating and dieting. Now, here's one for you to consider, to talk to your friends and family, and to talk to your physician. Low-dose aspirin. Yep. Many consider aspirin to be more effective at reducing heart attacks in men and better at reducing strokes in women. Discuss this. There are questions about aspirin because it has potential side effects, noticeably a gastrointestinal bleeding with some people. But there are products that you can use with the aspirin, such as Malox, which comes in a product called Ascriptin, which is aspirin with the Malox coated around it as a way of dealing with that. Again, learn about it. What else? You can consider the statin drugs, you know, Lipitor and his uh, cousins and family and friends, all those statins that keep cholesterol down. You can discuss that with your doctor. Alcohol, got to watch out here. Everybody thinks they have it under control. Many people don't have it under control, and it can cause problems. We all know that. Alcohol has also been shown to increase the risk of breast cancer and other uh, cancers. You got to give that one a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of thought, folks. Alcohol is everywhere. Advertisements for it are everywhere. It's fun to drink. Most everybody likes it. Not everybody, but most everybody does. Gives us a sense of relaxation. It's a bit of anesthesia. But then again, nothing for nothing, and you're liable to pay a price that you don't want to pay. Here's another one for many of you. Hormone therapy consisting of estrogen and progestin 
was once thought to prevent heart attacks, but the Women's Health Initiative in 19, uh, 2002 found that such hormone therapy actually increases, that's increases the risk of heart attack, stroke, blood clots, and breast cancer, at least in women over 63 who are considered older women. Well, the last one is you can know your family history, and that means if you see that your family has a history, the women in your family have a history of cardiovascular, you can be even more aggressive at these things that I've been talking about on the program. Of course, stress is another variable. Remember what uh, Bruce Lipton said a couple of weeks ago about how we can actually affect our genes by our thoughts and by our environment. Those are some of the heart-healthy steps that women can take. I hope you take it into consideration. It's old-fashioned saying, the life you save may be your own. In this case, it may well be, because again, 420,000 women, over 1,000 a day, are having cardiovascular events that are ending their lives. Okay, and now on to our interview with Julie Simon. Julie Simon is a licensed psychotherapist. She's also an MBA, Master's in Business Administration. She's been a life coach for over 20 years, helping people, helping particularly help people who are overeaters stop dieting. She's helped them heal their relationships with themselves and their bodies. She's helped them lose weight and keep it off. She's also personally a lifelong fitness enthusiast and she's a certified personal trainer and a founder and director of the Los Angeles-based 12-week Emotional Eating Recovery Program. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Julie Simon. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Very happy you are with us and just in time for the holidays because we know what that means for many of us. It means out of control and it means what I think you would call emotional eating. So my first question to you, Julie, is how does a person who's listening to this program know if they're a emotional eater? What is an emotional eater, and how does a person know if they are one? Well, that's such a great question. Um, I get that asked. I get asked that a lot, uh, and, pe- and people often say to me, aren't we all emotional eaters? You know, don't we all love to eat? And I always say to them, we all enjoy eating, and we all can eat emotionally at times just because the food is incredibly tasty or it enhances our personal or our social experiences. But the problem arises when we turn to food so often that our health or our weight is compromised. So I always say to people, if you are eating when you're not hungry, if you're eating when you're already full, you're bypassing or not listening to your, your physical signals, or if you're regularly choosing to eat unhealthy, junky comfort foods, the bulk of your overeating is not just because you love food and enjoy eating. Uh, it's a signal that something's out of balance somewhere. Um, and emotional eating basically represents a craving, an exaggerated craving or desire eat, uh, really, in place of um, the desire for pleasure, soothing, fulfillment, and distraction. So the following would apply. This is how your listeners could determine if they're an emotional eater. 
if you use food as a tranquilizer to dull emotions that are difficult to cope with, such as anxiety or anger, sadness, frustration, loneliness, and even happiness and joy. Some people feel the need to dull those emotions as well. If you use food to silence self-defeating critical thoughts, if you turn to food for soothing, comfort, pleasure, and excitement, if you eat to distract yourself from unpleasant feeling states, such as boredom or apathy or overwhelm, or just because you're in general you're upset, you're having stress, or you feel numb, if you eat as a way to procrastinate, taking care of things you need to get to, or if you try to fill up an inner emptiness by turning to food, I would determine that you're an emotional eater. How about those of us who use food as a way to contain our excitement? And I'm concluding myself on that one. Whereas sometimes, you know, I, I find myself, I've got tons of energy and it's getting into the evening after dinner and I'm, I'm excited or energized and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I've got to get out of this state here. I've got to get to bed soon because I've got to get up in the morning and I find myself gravitating towards the refrigerator because I know that if I eat, it's going to tire me out. Is that, is that, that's an example of what you're talking about, isn't it? Kind of. I don't know if I would say that was so much emotional eating. Um, I would say more that was, you know, what some people do, kind of eating to squash energy, eating to come down from the day. Yes, um, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I would think that that would, would really be more about not being so creative in terms of um, approaching that problem, right? So, for example, if you had a tra- have a treadmill at home or a stationary bike, I'd rather see you get on that for 10 minutes because that's probably going to tire you out a little bit, right? Or maybe reading. I know for me, I love to read, but reading will, will always, if I'm, you know, read for an extended period of time, I will get sleepy. Yes, I do use that method. I, I read and it puts me out, especially if I can get into something really boring. Yeah, so like to me, I would, I would say let's be more creative. Uh-huh. With that then, en- be more creative with that energy than just head for the icebox. Exactly. Because, and we'll talk about this in one of my skills, uh, about loving yourself, that isn't really a way you take the best care of yourself, would be to put more food in your body at a time of the day when your body doesn't need food, right? Yes. If you had a small toddler, right, and it was late at night and you wanted your toddler to go to bed, you probably wouldn't want to stuff your toddler full of food. Yeah. Right. So, yes. You know, so often we go into fields for occupations or specialties because of a personal experience that we that we have. I mean, I, I became a clinical psychologist and, and a psychotherapist because I felt like I had every problem, you know, that was possible for a human being to have. And so <laughs> <laughs> and so I got into the field to study all these problems and to get therapy and to get help and, and, and so on. W- were you once an emotional leader? Oh, yes, definitely. I started eating emotionally in my teens. Uh-huh. Um, I, like you, probably had every emotional issue there one could have. <laughs> um, came from a fairly dysfunctional family and, you know, really entered adulthood with very few self-care skills, uh-huh. the kind of skills that we're going we're gonna to talk about. Uh-huh. 
and I definitely ate emotionally. I used food to calm and soothe myself. It helped numb the pain of unpleasant emotions and self-doubt, and it altered my brain chemistry, and because it's pleasurable and exciting, it was a good distraction. And to add insult to injury, also I had inherited body and brain chemistry imbalances that made comfort foods, like those containing flour and sugar, and stimulants like caffeine and even nicotine, um, both attractive and addictive for me. So at one, po- at one point in your life, were you, like I was, uh, overweight? I was overweight, and I was uh, overeating regularly, uh-huh. and I was chronically dieting. And deep inside, because I've always been very intuitive and also very analytical, I always thought, there's something wrong with this equation. Animals in nature don't count calories. They don't weigh and measure food, and they maintain their weight in optimum ranges. And I thought, we humans are built the same way. So something is wrong that I'm having to put myself on 800 calories to lose weight. It makes me crazy. It makes me hungry all the time, and I can't stick with it. And then I gain the weight, and then I eat ravenously. Something's wrong with this equation. Definitely. What's the most that you've ever weighed? I most was probably about thirty pounds over what you my are now? natural weight. Yeah, so I, I, I don't really have the genes for obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I could weigh a hundred pounds over my weight. But what I always say to people, you know, even people come to my seminars and they've they you know uh, are fifty to a hundred pounds overweight. I say, you know, the issues are the same. I mean, really, the issues may not be the same as you know, you can't fit in an airplane seat when you're 50 to 100 pounds overweight. But the emotional issues are the same, whether it's 30 pounds or 80 pounds. Yes, yes. Well, in your book uh, in, and in your recovery program, you have uh, described what you call five self-care skills. And I'd like to, for you to discuss those self-care skills for, uh, for our listeners and, and for myself, really. Um, and the first one you call establishing the habit of self-connection. Tell us what that means, to establish a habit of self-connection. Well, let me, uh, if I can go uh, backtrack just a tiny bit before I go into those. Certainly. Just to help uh, listeners understand that what most emotional eaters have in common is that their early family experiences were undernourishing at best and at worst chaotic, or traumatic. So for a variety of reasons, most emotional eaters grow up in environments where their emotional needs have not been adequately met. And I have people come to my seminars and workshops who say, you know, I had loving parents that were very nurturing, very nourishing. And I say to them, even loving, kind, well-meaning caregivers can miss the mark if their parents perhaps were missing some of these skills um, most of us know of mothers and grandmothers who, when the baby cries, you know, they give food. You know, the little child has a problem, they make cookies, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So even, even the most well-meaning caregivers can miss the mark. And then many of us, like myself, and sounds like maybe you, um, grew up in environments where, I mean, my mother did have um, mental illness. She was bipolar. And so 
if that's the case, if, if we do grow up in a household where our emotional needs are not met, um, we lose touch with our most important signals. We lose touch with our emotions. We lose touch with our needs. Many emotional leaders who come to work with me are unaware of what they're feeling most of the time, and they don't know what they're really needing. And they have not developed an internal nourishing voice that can help comfort and soothe them, uh, the voice that would naturally develop if we heard it all the time from loving, nourishing caregivers, and if our caregivers were capable of soothing and comforting us. So the first skill is kind of getting back to basics, and I call it self-connection. And the way I teach self-connection, self-connection, by the way, just means going inside and checking in with our inner world of emotions and needs. And I teach a three-step process that I call inner conversations because all of us are having inner conversations all the time, right? You know, talking to yourself at the store, I think I'll buy a chocolate cake. No, don't buy a chocolate cake. I don't need a chocolate cake. Oh, but it would taste so good. I would just have one piece. No, right? So we all, we're always having inner conversations. So this process is to, it, it accomplishes many tasks all in one, and that's why it's the first skill, and I, I love this skill. Um, and it's very basic. The first step is to identify what you're feeling. So you're at the market. You keep circling the area where the chocolate cake is, and you keep debating with yourself whether to have it. And I want you to ask yourself, what am I feeling? I, I certainly, my body is certainly not needing chocolate cake. I'm wanting it. But what am I feeling? Okay. So then you identify, well, it's Sunday evening. Uh, tomorrow's Monday. It's work. I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling unnourished. Um, I feel a little empty. Okay. What do I need? That's part two of the inner conversation. What do I need? Because certainly my body is not needing chocolate cake. Well, no, my I body need- isn't needing chocolate cake. My body is needing bran muffins and a walnut bread, and maybe a pound of granola. <laughs> pound of granola. <laughs> oh yeah, I want that whole pound there. So every time I walk by in the kitchen, I can have a little ladle full if I'm feeling a little, a little over energized. So I, I want to start. <laughs> so okay. So what you're what you're suggesting here is that we have this inner conversation right in the supermarket. You're not talking about in advance sitting down at home with your eyes closed and getting into your feelings and so on. So that when you get to the supermarket, you're talking about doing it right in vivo. Correct. Correct. Okay. Right in the moment. Right in the moment. So you learn how to connect to yourself. That's what the self-connection is. Connect to yourself in that moment. Or if you are driving home from work and you want to go to the drive-thru rather than go home and prepare a healthy dinner for yourself. And, or you're at Jack in the Box already. And you're thinking, you know, big cheeseburger, right? Pull into the parking lot for a second. Pull out of the drive-thru line. Pull into the parking lot. Sit there for a second and have a conversation. I have people tell me, that this has been so effective at these particular points in time, in the market, in the drive-thru, standing outside the bakery, right? Just take the time to have the little conversation with yourself. 
as a way of controlling the impulse to just act. Exactly. It interrupts the impulse, and it does so much more than just interrupt the impulse. It also establishes a habit of connecting to your most precious signals, your emotions, right? And and then, and we're going to get to the, the third part of that in a minute, you know, accessing this inner nourishing voice. So you identify what you're feeling. Most people with very little practice can, can identify their feelings. The need part becomes much more difficult for most people. What am I needing? So I need some comfort. I need a new job. I need a life partner. Uh, in your case, it would be I need to calm down. I need to relax for the evening. Yes. Um, identifying what you need. And then the third step is accessing this inner nourishing voice. And this is such a critical piece, and it's critical for all of the rest of the skill building in the book. Many of us have a very, very overdeveloped inner critic in our head. And that we're very aware of. Most emotional eaters do not have a strong inner nourishing voice, a voice that can say, of course you're feeling lonely right now. You know, we don't have a partner, and our best friend just moved away, and it makes sense that we're feeling lonely right now. It's okay to feel lonely. You know, chocolate cake isn't really going to change that, and we're probably going to feel pretty bad about ourselves after we eat it or tomorrow. And I'm here with you right now, and I'm here to tell you that we can meet more friends, we can make more friends, we can find a partner over time. I love you. I care about you. You're important to me. I'm here with you. Why don't we go home and maybe just take a peek on an Internet dating site and see what's going on? Or let's go home and just look up some of those meetup groups and see where maybe we could go to meet some people. I'm here with you. I care about you. I love you. We're going to get through this. Let's not do the chocolate cake tonight. We all need to have that voice inside. Sounds like a sounds like a lovely voice. I'd love to have that kind of voice inside of me. I'm with you. (laughs) I I I so often can hear that critic going right at me and and telling me don't do this and don't do that and blah blah blah, but not really giving me any support for doing the other thing when that voice is on. It's a tough or voice. Or giving you support, or that voice isn't giving you support for being right where you are, mm-hmm. right? It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel lonely. And validation, of course you feel lonely. Your best friend just moved away. Of course you're lonely. It's okay. So we're also normalizing the emotions. We're also making it we're being very adult and rational. We're knowing that they're not going to go away tomorrow. But it feels so much better being in one of those states if I'm eating a big bowl of granola with a lot of yogurt on it and maybe some blueberries. It does feel better. And part of that, you know, in, in part two, I talk about why some of that feels better, especially, let's say, the granola, because modern processed foods are drug-like. Definitely. And Definitely. You know, if, if we lived out in the you know jungles of Nepal, you wouldn't have those foods to do that with, right? So uh, we've all found over time as emotional eaters, we found these drug-like foods that you know the nourishing inner voice is not a quick fix. 
the granola is. Over time, we have found, all of us as emotional eaters, we have found the perfect, quick, drug-like fix in the form of some food item. That's right? right. That's right. We're mainlining the food right into the vein, right into the emotions, right into my consciousness. And what I want all emotional eaters to understand is it's not your fault either. These processed foods trigger tremendous cascades of pleasing, pleasurable brain chemicals. And once you are used to, like any drug addict, food addiction does exist, uh, like any drug addict, once you get accustomed to, you know, triggering that cascade of chemicals, there is no way you're going to want to sit down with yourself and comfort yourself. That's a slow process, right? You're going to want to mainline the chocolate cake. Yes, but you're saying here in your step number one for us all to know that taking that time in your car, as you're wheeling your cart around the supermarket, wherever you are, taking the time is what you're saying to simply either close one's eyes or with eyes open to have the inner conversation about what we're doing and get in touch with our feelings rather than just impulsively act. That's step one. Yes, and that applies to many, many areas of your life, and it applies even when you're no longer an emotional eater. I'm not an emotional eater, but when I'm tired sometimes, and let's say I'm in the market, I might want to get some bready item, right? Not, I wouldn't say so much out of emotion or anything not feeling good in my life, but just some comfort, right? And I'll stop and I'll have an inner conversation. I tell people, the ladies in my groups all the time, I say, you know, I had an inner conversation the other night. I wanted to buy some bread and I have wheat allergies. And my feeling self said, ah, oh, just get, you know, just get one small little thing of bread, one small loaf. And then my inner nurturer said, oh, sweetheart, I know how much you love the taste of that, but that does not work for our body. So oh. we've got some other choices. We've got potatoes, we've got brown rice, and that's not what works for our body. I love the way you call yourself sweetheart. I think that's a great thing to do. And the person who is just calling herself sweetheart in her inner voice is Julie Simon. We're here talking with her about her latest book, The Emotional Eater's Repair Manual, a practical mind-body-spirit guide for putting an end to overeating and dieting. Look, we all know that low-quality foods are cheaper. We know that fast food restaurants are cheap and low quality. We know that the manufacturers lace food with sugar and salt to induce eating. We know that the position on the shelf in the supermarket is political and financial, but not nutritional. We know that gasoline stations have low-quality food, and we know that movie theaters and sports events are all serving this low-quality comfort food. We know that stuff, but here Julie Simon is giving us some ways to address these issues. We're going to move on now. Julie, tell us about your skill number two, catch and reframe self-defeating thoughts. Well, this is another skill that's so crucial um, for most emotional eaters because, as I said before, most of us have very well-developed inner critics beating beating us up 24-7, and we don't have a very well-developed inner nurturer voice. And so... I teach people to just get in the habit and of catching thoughts that are anxious or negative or critical or judgmental or catastrophic or personalizing. Get in the habit of just catching them and work on 
finding a reframe of the thought that works for you better, something that you can say yes to. Because some people will say, you know, oh, are reframes just affirmations? Well, they don't work for me, right? And I say, well, you've got to find a thought that you can reframe your, your critical thought to, and that reframe works for you. So, and again, all these skills, they don't have to take, you don't have to sit for hours with your journal at home, you know, doing this. You can do this in the moment. So you're out um, trying on clothes in a dressing room. This is a common one for women. You look in the mirror and you say, I hate my body. Okay? That's a pretty strong, harsh, negative, critical thought. I used to do this as an emotional eater. And it would for sure send me into the mall food court, you know, looking for something to comfort myself with. So you have this thought, you know, I'm, I hate my body. And in the book, I teach people how to, what I call kind of go under their thoughts. Look at what that really means to you. So what does I hate my body mean? It means no one will ever love me this way, okay? So let's take that thought. No one will ever love me this way. Now we try to work on a reframe that you can live with, right? So saying something like, uh, I'm beautiful and, and wonderful and, you know, the world is my oyster, <laughs> right? Most people say that doesn't work for me. Ridiculous. Still- How can I look myself? I'm 75 pounds overweight and I look in the mirror and I see that and I'm thinking, oh my God, I look terrible. Right. How do I now all of a sudden reframe it a la George Lakoff and say, oh, you look great. You're just a nice big fat guy. Right. right, or I, I'm beautiful no matter what. Right, right? yeah. And people you, say, that doesn't work for me. No, it I doesn't. Feel- you got to get under these 80 pounds that I'm carrying on top of my beautiful body, <laughs> right? Right. Okay, what do so, I, okay, what do I do? So I try to help people come up with a reframe that, again, that changes their state from, you know, the minute you're having that negative thought, you're in a terrible place all of a sudden. Like terrible. You were fine. Terrible. You went into the dressing room. You were okay. Then you tried on the clothes. Now you're in a terrible mood. Terrible. In fact, two weeks ago, Bruce Lipton was on the show talking about his uh, uh, series about biology of belief, Julian. And he said that when we have those kind of thoughts that you're talking about, we actually change our, bl- our chemistry. And then the chemistry then changes our biology. So the, I so believe in y- that. Yes, these self-defeating thoughts are even worse than we thought they were, and we thought they were terrible to begin with. Yes, I mean, do you remember, I forget the guy's name who um, was doing the water studies, and how when you talk to water, that, you know, you're, you have, you're nice and loving to water, the molecules change. And then, you know, when you're harsh, the molecules go a different way. So I so totally believe in what he's saying. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we all know, we know that experience, that the minute we have those harsh thoughts, we have just such a shift in our whole brain and body chemistry going so, on. So we've got to figure out some way to, to balance or reframe, in Lakoff's words, reframe these negative self-defeating thoughts. It's imperative, isn't it? It is imperative. And what I like to, to go help people go to are not necessarily, again, those kind of uh, affirmation-type thoughts that don't feel comforting to most people. Um, But to get to a thought maybe that says something like, so I'm looking at my body, I'm hating my body, so maybe I can get to a thought that says, as I practice loving and accepting my body as it is today, 
I'm able to begin to make the necessary changes to get my weight where I want it, right? So often people will say, well, I think I can get behind that one. Like, as I practice loving myself, because I'm standing in this dressing room and I'm not loving myself, I'm hating myself. So if I practice loving myself, I can get there. Now, in just that moment of saying something like that, I started to feel hope instead of despair. Okay, now we're on the right track. Okay, right. well, let's say we're on the right track. I'm going to move you on because I see that we, we don't have a lot of time. We have 20 minutes, and we've got three, several more of your skills, and I want to get them all out there. But just to underline what Julie is saying here is you, we've got to address, we've got to identify, identify first our self-defeating thoughts. Listen to them. Once we even hear in our minds that we're calling ourselves names, that we're criticizing ourselves, we're putting ourselves down, we're coming from a place of powerlessness, just identifying is a good step along the way because at least then we can say to ourselves, there I am, I'm doing it again, I'm beating myself. So that's a great step. Now, your next skill you call soothe the small stuff, grieve the big stuff. Tell us about self-soothing, Julie, please. Yes, okay, so when, you know, if we've been working on our self-connection and we've been reframing our thoughts, for a lot of people they'll say, you know what? I'm really doing better with my food. Just those two skills are tremendously helping me interrupt my emotional eating. <clears throat> and that's great. And maybe you can stop there. Um, but for many, and I'd say most emotional eaters, they have had more, uh, some have had very traumatic early childhood experiences. Um, some have just not had an, quite enough soothing from their caregivers. And again, they're going to need to learn how to self-soothe, how to comfort themselves. You know, my example before in the, in the um, grocery store, you know, when I'm wanting that chocolate cake and my feeling self needs some soothing. So in this skill, we're going to learn how to develop that self-soothing capacity. And for those of us that have had more traumatic experiences, maybe we've had a lot of loss in our life or we've had considerable disappointments in our lives, we're also going to need to learn the healing self-care skill called grieving. And in our modern culture, most of us, you know, we don't like to grieve. We don't like to be around other people's grief. We like to get it over and done with. Um, but grieving is an incredible healing self-care skill it's something we do the rest of our lifetime um, if we need to, and we'll do it for many, many events in our lives. People will come to me and they'll say, I thought I grieved all my mother stuff. And I say, you know, you're probably going to be grieving your mother stuff throughout your lifetime. But you're not going to have to do it every day or every week. You're just going to do it when what I call the iceberg, the iceberg of old pain that's down there, when it's surfacing right? When it starts to come up, and the way you know it's surfacing is it starts to create what I call highly reactive emotional states in your life. So you're finding you're more rageful again, or you're finding that you're sad, you're having excessive sadness again, or you're feeling regularly and routinely depressed, assuming it's not all biochemical. Um, you're going to need to melt that iceberg a little bit with the healing self-care skill called grieving. And that's the third skill. 
grieving. By the way, those of you who are listening, this is a good time to call in and ask Julie a question because we've got about 15 minutes left. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. We're here with Julie Simon. We're talking about her latest book, The Emotional Eater's Repair Manual. Give a, give a call. No sooner do I finish saying that, that we do have a caller for you, Julie, so we're going to interrupt the interview for a moment. Okay. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, I need to... You better turn your radio yep. down. I hear the echo in the background. Yep. I'm just wondering how you change the biochemistry in your brain when it's set up um, so strong. Like, I mean, even for like an alcoholic or a food eater. How do you change the biochemistry um, to then change yourself? Great question. How do That's you change? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. It actually pushes us towards the, more towards the end of your book, but let's see uh, what you have to say about that. It was actually part two of your book, which it's is entitled... part two. I'll, I'll just say a couple of things since we don't have as much time to go, you know, to dive into that part yes, of the book. Yes, please. Let me just say a couple of things. Number one, um, there are, if you have food addiction, if you find that you're very, very compulsive with certain foods, I know for me, scones are like crack. Um, scones? Did you say scones? Scones. scones. What's your, whole wheat with uh, with blueberries? What's your favorite It doesn't kind? matter what. Whole <laughs> wheat, not whole wheat. Oh you my put God. a bite of a scone in my mouth, and I guarantee you those reward centers are lighting up in my brain. If you put a bite of scone in your mouth, that's a bite I missed. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking well, I'll my. Share mine with you. You're talking my scone language. I can mainline a scone for, from a Cousteau Bakery. Any, <laughs> let's not oh go God. into it. Okay, let's, let's not get off. On no, we scones. better not we because we could have a whole hour about scones. Easily, because <laughs> you can see I'm even now ma- naming the bakeries that name that make the best scones because that's how deep into it I am. All right, and tell I'm us. I'm starting some. to salivate. So. <laughs> okay, salivate into telling our listener a little more about the chemistry aspect. Okay, so what goes on with certain of these modern processed drug-like foods is that they're activating pleasure centers in our brain. Uh, And it's not your fault if you feel like you can't pull away from these foods. Um, It takes a Herculean effort when you've been used to lighting up those um, centers of your brain to then move towards unprocessed whole foods because they're not as activating, they don't feel as stimulating. So you're going to need to address your body and brain chemistry imbalances. Those of us that feel that way about particular foods have body and brain chemistry imbalances that need to be corrected, okay? So I I don't have time to go into all that, but there are amino acids um, that dramatically help um, uh, correct brain chemistry imbalances that lead you to crave those foods. So, for example, my brain chemistry is now corrected by using certain amino acids. And I can have a scone, and I don't feel the same same intense draw that I would if my brain chemistry weren't corrected. Okay? Um, so, I talk about that in the book. The other thing... Do you belong to, to Scone Eaters Anonymous? <laughs> no, but I but I don't need to anymore. I'm a recovered. Oh, you're a, a recovered scone eater. Good for you. <laughs> the other thing that I would suggest to your listener is 
slowly to begin the introduction, if you haven't already, of whole, unprocessed plant foods into your eating plan because these foods are very body and brain balancing. And as you, as you do some steps to correct your brain chemistry imbalances and your body imbalances, these foods will help balance your body and brain as well. So those would be two steps that you'll find in the book that, that can really help you get off of some of those foods you have addiction with. So vegetables and fruits that we're hearing about everywhere nowadays are right on the money, huh? And not even just vegetables and fruits. Everybody thinks, you know, plant-based is all veggies and fruits. Um, garbanzo beans are so high in serotonin. Garbanzo beans, right? I love garbanzo beans. They're so high in serotonin, they will adjust your brain chemistry really nicely. So, you know, there are lots of foods that will will help to alter your body and brain chemistry. I'll be headed for the store for garbanzos after I leave the studio. Yeah, they're full of serotonin, and they're very high in protein. People think that you have to eat all this animal food for protein, but these... They're foods that are very high in protein. You think I could, if I congeal and pull a bunch of garbanzos together, can I make them look like a scone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, you, and you'll fake your brain out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get the pleasure of eating the scone, and I'll get the serotonin hit at the same time. I would love it. <laughs> on, on page 70 and 71 of Julie's book, you're going to want to look at what she calls soothing words and soothing behaviors. There's a great list of stuff here that, that you'll find just really practical. For example, the soothing behavior she talks about, put on comfortable clothing, sit in a comfortable chair, breathe deeply, hold or hug yourself, stroke your face, arms, and shoulders, sit and stroke, give yourself a pet like you would your, your animal, curl up in a fetal position, who would think of doing that? But when, you, but when you think of it, it makes total sense, doesn't it? It would be very comforting to do that. Huddle a, here she says, hold a cuddly stuffed animal. You might put yourself, you know, oh, silly, silly, silly. But you know, it could work. Why not try it? It's non-invasive. It's not like buying prescription medicine. It's just a little stuffed animal. Journal about your feelings, Julie says. Write this stuff down. I love this one. Take a warm bath or a shower. We, we all love that. That's a very nourishing, soothing thing to and do. And that would be good for you, Richard, when you said that you, like, you're, you have too much energy in the evening, right? Ju- what about a bath? Julie, I am so into baths, I own a natural hot mineral springs called Wilbur I Hot know. Springs. You know that. <laughs> I want to come there. <laughs> it's wonderful. And when I'm there, I bathe three times a day. It's very soothing for me. There you go. <laughs> and also takes the, the, a lot of the pain out of my, uh, my, my muscles. And, and I'm very tall. And the lower back stuff is uh, chronic, and the hot water is excellent for it. Listening to comforting music. I could go on, but this is on page 71 of her great book, A Practical Mind-Spirit Guide to Putting an End to Overeating and Dieting. We're going to take another call. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Goodness, that was quick. Yes. I was going to suggest to you that you might want to get some garbanzo bean flour so you can make scones with that. Thank you. That's okay. a great idea. That's a great idea. I'm writing it down. Garbanzo yep. bean flour. Yeah. Bob's Red Mill is one of the brands. I use Bob's right on. I'll get it. Thanks. That's okay, right. You're I welcome. forgot. You can, uh, you can get, you know, all kinds of bean flour. You're right. That's right. <clears throat> I will do it, and I'll report back on the air, either in two, uh, next time I'm on, which will be in January. Listen to some of these other things for soothing behavior. Gardening. Create artwork. 
knit, bead, sew, or do needlepoint. Household chores. Household chores can be soothing. Meditation, of course. Praying and chanting. The new kind of chanting that's going on. Call and response called kirtan, where one person plays an instrument and sings, and then the audience sings back. It's sort of like sing-along, only they do it in Sanskrit. These are all soothing behaviors. We've got to rush you through a little bit here because I want to get to your other two points before we run out of time. Uh, I know we're rushing, and I apologize for that. But your, your next skills, big skill number four, you call create a state of enoughness. Enoughness. Talk about that because so many, how often do we hear, particularly in therapy in, the, in, the, in our offices, I don't feel like I'm enough. I'm not enough. Well, often we don't feel we're enough. And then what I see in my practice with emotional eaters is that they don't feel that they have enough, right? So I don't have enough love. I don't have enough friends. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough, you know, it's almost like it's never enough. Never enough. I'm I'm never enough. I keep eating. I can continue to eat because the food doesn't even satisfy me. The food doesn't ever even feel like enough. So I help emotional eaters you know, stop and really figure out what is there not enough of in their lives, right? And begin to really start to make some action plans on what is missing. Again, we're going to access that inner nourishing voice for help. What's missing, excuse me, what's missing in our lives? And what are we going to need to bring some of that in? So we're going to set some intentions, um, Maybe you say, I really want to have some company in my life. I give an example of someone in the book where she wants to have some companionship. She's divorced. And she realizes that she's not really ready to start dating um, and doesn't really want to go out and work so much on making friends. But she also is kind of feeling purposeless and feeling like she needs one thing that there isn't enough of is purpose in her life. So she decides to volunteer at a rescue uh, agency, and also to adopt a kitten, to adopt a cat. So this meets some, some of her not-enoughness. Now she has uh, some, something to love, and now she has something meaningful to do, and she's addressed a little bit of what there wasn't enough of in her life. And, and I even say in the book, you know, sometimes we're not going to be able to fix everything that's wrong with our lives you know, in one little session of journaling. But we can at least begin to look at what there isn't enough of and begin to take steps to address that. And then I also talk about, in that particular skill, learning to set boundaries with others because sometimes uh, learning to set limits with ourselves, that's part of, you know, when there isn't enough, we need to know how to, that gentle, nourishing limits with ourselves on, on our eating and on other things. You know, and then he- also covered in that step is learning to set boundaries with others so that our, our world feels, um, you know, full of what we want in it, but not too merged uh, into other people's stuff and not, uh, not too isolated from other people. Yes, I kind of cover know, all of that in that particular skill. Yes. You know, so much of what you talk about is, is in part related to taking the time 
to, look, to just think or to reflect, to take a few minutes, whether it's in the supermarket, as you say, or whether it's in your car getting off the Starbucks line, or whether it's in your home, it's, it's taking the time to look within to get a sense of what it is that's going on that's driving us. And, and that's a very important message in a very busy world. It's a, you're giving us a very important message of taking the time to just look, just to think, just to reflect, so that we can get a handle on what it is that's, that we're impulsively uh, eating about. And, well, then, and the, the two things I would want to say about that are that, so the message is about mindfulness. Yes. It's about being mindful uh-huh. of what's missing, perhaps, in your life, and also what, what is in your life, what's not missing. But the other thing is the, being mindful and also developing that inner nourishing voice. So rather than being mindful that your life is missing certain things and then flipping into hopelessness, despair, giving up, writing it off and going and eating, developing that nourishing voice that says, okay, I'm divorced, I don't have a partner, my friends are gone, my kids have moved away, it's over for me, right? Is moving to that inner nourishing voice that says, okay, my life isn't feeling particularly full right now, but there's a lot of life ahead, and I'm here with you, and you got me, and I'm on your team, and together we're unstoppable. Yes. Developing that nourishing, cheerleading, coaching, counseling, comforting voice inside yourself. I love that terminology. Having an inner, an inner cheerleader, an inner encourager supporting that part of ourselves, because everybody who's listening to this, I, I, I say that and I really you know, want to say everybody, I don't want to say always, but in this particular case, I think everybody is familiar with the inner critic. We all have that inner critic. But not all of us are familiar with this inner cheerleader, this inner encourager, this inner supporter, this inner nurturer that you're talking about, Julie. And that is so important that we take the time to develop that, isn't it? Yes. That's, if, if that is all someone took away from my book, I would be thrilled. To, 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 to develop a conversation with that inner positive voice. That would be a wonderful thing in and of itself. In and of itself, if that's, if that's what you spend time developing, with an inner nurturing voice, you'd be leaps and bounds ahead. Well, thank you, Julie Simon, for coming on to our program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today. Julie's book, The Emotional Eater's Repair Manual, is readily available. Remember, it's a practical guide. This isn't a theoretical thing that you're going to have to wade through and spend hours on every page. This is a practical mind-spirit guide for putting an end to overeating and dieting. Julie, thank you very much, and I wish you a wonderful holiday season. And I know you're not going to. Thank you. And I know you're not going to overeat. I won't. And thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. So we're coming to the end of another year. Uh, I will be with you again in January. I'm about to go on my two-week annual vacation. And summing up the year, you know, it's been a year where I and my own self have focused a great deal of my thinking on the economic stratification that's going on. I know this is a serious note to leave you with, 
but that's who I am and that's what I want to leave you with, which is that the country is continuing to go through a tremendous economic stratification between the haves and the have-nots. The whole issue of the 1% and the 9% is not a myth. It's not a bunch of hype. 